I'm going to take a second to thank our newest sponsor, ATO Basketball Merchants, located directly at the Langley Event Center at 7888 Street. In building number 120, our boy Jeff Winslade has a wide variety of the latest gear, jerseys, sweatpants, socks, hats, fitted, doesn't matter, a huge shoe rack, anything you need if you're a hooper and a hoop head. Please stop by the store, show some support, and get yourself some fly gear. If anyone wants, I'm a double XL, and I'll take that Rex Chapman Hornets in white. Thanks to ATO B-Ball. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to A Hoops Journey. Uh, we are going down a rich basketball family and a gentleman who has had much success as a coach in our province of British Columbia and um, in our country. We're talking numerous provincial teams, high school championships, five CIS titles, a current NCAA coach. Believe it or not, two seasons of undefeated basketball, 35 and 38 and 0, which is absolutely mind blowing. We have none other than Mr. Bruce Langford with us today. How are you, sir? I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me and uh, looking forward to the chat. Yeah, as, as well. I think it's, you know, we're, we're doing the best we can to cover as many sort of different people involved in the game. And you're someone who's obviously in our province, a, a well-known name. And um, how are things for you right now? We're, we're just sort of starting summertime and um, you're probably picking and choosing and recruiting, but also trying to balance some of that downtime that you do have. And how's life for you and your family these days? My wife would say there is no downtime in a coach's life. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> As you just got back from a recruiting trip, right? Yeah. <laughs> I did just get back from uh, Montreal on the weekend before I was in Edmonton and it's actually been quite a busy month because obviously I've been in San Francisco quite a bit with the Warriors stuff too. And um, so it's, it's been a hectic time, but yeah, you're right. We're um, putting some names together for recruiting and trying to do some final pieces on a few people. And how, how was that time? I mean, how many pinch me moments have you had in the last month with the Warriors stuff? I mean, it's pretty darn cool. Uh, and I'm sure for you, just some amazing times and, and memories for you that you've created for yourself. Well, it has been, uh, it's, you know, I mean, it's nice to see my daughter's success and the fact that she's achieved, you know, her, her goals. One of her goals was to work with great athletes. And I'm not so sure she could be working with too many greater <laughs> athletes than she's working with. And so that's a nice piece to see. And certainly the, we had a preseason there where we got to get, go to some games. Um, and it was, it's a new chase center is a new building and it was, it was, very a neat building and mm-hmm. uh, some liveliness there, but you know, the, where they were before I had a little more liveliness, I thought, but then by the time I got to like my eighth or ninth game in the playoffs, the first stage was like, Whoa, this is a little louder Then the second one was a little louder. And by the finals, I gave five in the finals. Yeah. And it was like, I can't believe this place is so noisy. It was crazy. Hey, yeah, yeah, that's cool. I don't know if you know, like we're trying to get her on as well. And it's just so interesting too. like you, I think people out there who aren't involved in it just assume like, all right, well, they just won the title. So now it's time to rest. And she's like messaging me back. Um, I'm just moving right now and packing boxes. And then I have summer league in like next week. So once I know what it's like, as they jump into the next thing, right, it's just crazy. And so, yeah, a, a great opportunity and gets to work with the highest level athletes in the world, like you've mentioned, but also, um, you know, pretty challenging job in itself in terms of, um, you know, there's not a lot of downtime. Hey which that was just very eye-opening for me, you know? 
Well, it's unbelievable that I, we, my wife and I took our grandkids down um, for spring break because the kids have been up here all year, right? They've been yeah. down for a couple of visits. So we took them down for a couple of weeks and we would plan the next day. And, you know, we'd say, that well, she, she thought she was going to be working maybe 1030 till 11 o'clock, 10 midnight the next day. And yeah. then she'd get a she got a text saying, no, so-and-so needs some help at such and such a time earlier. You need to go in a couple hours earlier. So the day plans never, ever worked out. There was always additions to the workday, which were 12, well, you know, beyond 12-hour workdays or 15, 16-hour workdays sometimes. And she was looking a little haggard and a little tired and... Uh, <laughs> It's demanding, yeah. but it's, you know, the price you pay, right? For sure. And very cool. And some awesome moments. Well, let's get into it with you and, and shift it to actually who our guest is. Forget about that other Langford, you know? Um, you know, we've had a couple of your former players on this show and, and your name's been brought up. And um, I'm, as a, you know, from a coaching perspective, intrigued to know more about your journey personally. Let's just talk about you growing up as a, as a little guy and uh, was sports a big part of your life? And, and um, what was it like growing up in your family and your neighborhoods? I had more neighborhoods than the average kid because I lived in uh, 14 houses by the time I was in grade nine. I lived in 21 different houses when I, by the time I was married. And I went to 11, 12, 11 schools, 12 schools, if you count kindergarten. Wow. So the neighborhoods changed frequently. Um, sports were a big part of all of that up until, until I was about 14. My parents got divorced when I was 14, and we moved from Calgary. My mom wanted to get out of the same town my dad was in. They were going to move back to London, Ontario, but I didn't want to go back to London, Ontario because they hated the humidity, and I wanted to go back to BC because I like the BC Lions, and I like the the cooler, the more temperate climate. (laughs) And as a a rude, obnoxious 14-year-old whose parents are just divorced, I sort of put my foot down and said, you know, we need to go, and uh, we ended up coming back to BC. And when I got here, I had a medical in the new school I was in, McPherson Park, and I had uh, they diagnosed me with a hernia. And so I had just gone to baseball tryouts here and then couldn't play baseball. So for the first period of time in my life, didn't play a sport. Wow. And when you move from city to city to city as much as I did, it's the sports that kind of gets you the friends and gets you into a circle of people. Sure. And I lost that sports connection coming to BC in a very, I think, significant time. Yeah. 14 is a, it's a tough age for boys, especially, right? Like we're going through a lot and our behaviors are not always uh, the most appropriate, but it's mostly because the frontal lobe is working so hard to develop and you're right, the power of sport and those connections. So how did you work through it? Did that, like, were you an introverted kind of kid? Were you introverted? Like what, what were you like and how did you sort of work through that? I was extremely introverted and extremely shy. And I would say that those next two years became the most tumultuous kind of of my life because I, my wife, or my wife, my mother had never worked. Um, she was always, a, she's always a stay at home mom, but here we were in a new city with five kids. I was the oldest at 14. So it went from me 14 down to four. She now is working and, and there's a million and one stories, but she, she got into a kind of a seedy crowd of criminal gangster elements and uh, we had a hectic hectic few years i ended up on probation and 
did a lot of other things that would have got me a lot more than probation if I would have been caught and mm-hmm. really wasn't too involved with sports for a few years. Mm. When I finally got out of high school, after a very tumultuous high school experience, we're, not, we're talking 67, 68, 69, so the days of LSD at its peak. Yeah. I uh, tried to sort of find my way a little bit and and ended up getting married very young in my life. And then I started to go back to sports a little bit, coach, because my younger brothers were coming through sports world. And, and um, anyway, I was working at Sears. My dad had come and visited us and said, you know, you should get into computers because computers are the new rage. You play chess, you like chess. I was one of those chess club quiet kids. And all his thing was all of his programmer guys were all chess players, so it would be a good thing for you. So I I sort of started to go that direction a little bit, went to PCIT at night while I was working at Sears. Mm. Sears transferred me into the computer department and paid for my courses at night to go to PCIT. That's cool. So it seems like very early on, lots of growing up quickly for you, you know, the the divorce and then you being the eldest sort of, you know, back in those days, especially it was like, okay, well now there's a lot on you, you know, making sandwiches, getting kids out the door, things that, you know, 14, 15, 16 year old probably shouldn't be uh, dealing with, but you know, on one hand, probably hard and stressful, but two, you're learning a lot about sort of real life at a, at a pretty young age. Hey. Yeah, I think probably, I mean, I, my my mother ended up taking a job in afternoons, like four till midnight, and mm. and I'm and I'm the old mature one in the house who's not mature, <laughs> and I'm cooking the dinners. And if you were to ask my siblings, they would tell you they were the worst dinners they've ever had, um, <laughs> because I cooked the hamburger too long and made it a little gristle. But I really liked gristle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. And so did you stick at Sears for, for a long time? And, and what did that like computer thing do for you? And when did you really start to, I mean, you touched on early sort of coaching your brothers and, and siblings at a younger age and, and getting that feel of coaching, but how did things progress for you from that part of your life? I got married at 21 and my wife was uh, progressing up. She was working at Sears. We'd already met before that, but she happened to be there too. And she, uh, she was moving up and she moved into uh, assistant to the fashion coordinator at BC's job. And then she eventually got that job. But meanwhile, I, I was taking these courses at BCIT and I really liked the programming courses, but they all, you all had so had to take accounting courses to go with them because most programming then was business programming for uh, spreadsheets and payroll and, and inventory and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I hated it. Um, <laughs> I'd home and I would do like, we had a guy, I had a guy that I went with, and I would do all of the computer course homework, no sweat. I would not do the, the other homework because it was 55 problems that were all the same, Ugh. right? They were all math related spreadsheet problems. And I, and I just would do 55 of them and I would come in. And anyway, my wife said, look, why don't you quit? Why don't you go to university? You want, why don't you teach? You love history. You do a lot of history reading. You like sports. You could, you could coach. And I said, I can't do it because we're married and I'm supposed to be a provider of <laughs> my household. Right. And, and she said, don't be ridiculous. I've got a good job. You can go back to school. And so I told Sears and they said, well, you can, we'll give you the Saturday computer job looking after the TRW machine, which did all the credit checks in the stores and doing all the payroll at night because we've never had a Saturday guy who could do payroll. So that became my university job and I went back and I did a history degree and became a social studies teacher and and coached in schools. And so that kind of started the 
the real progression towards coaching. You didn't want to get into math, teaching math, hey? No? No, but I actually did teach some math along the way. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> you should find those kids. It wasn't, it wasn't that I was terrible at it. It was just that I found it mundane and boring to do the same problem over and over. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where did you get your first job? Uh, well, I was, um, I did my student teaching in Langley and I got a job at HD Stafford, which was a junior high school then, became a high school later, and is now back to a junior high, I believe. Yeah. Um, and the principal wanted to hire me, so he created a, a job for me and I worked there for a year, but I subbed in a year and a half in the district while he was trying to get me hired. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, a job fell through for the next year at the last minute, the first day of school kind of fell through. I ended up going to Vancouver Island North. Mm. And uh, taught in a little town called Holberg. Wow. And then I went from, then I went from Holberg to Mission Junior, and I was in Mission for 18, 19 years. Yeah. Oh, wow. What was it like at that small community? Was it a <laughs> pretty interesting um, time, I guess? Yeah. Extremely interesting experience. I is uh, a military base the school was on. And so I only hit, there were only 42 high school kids in grade 8, 9, and 10. And there were, I think, 22 of them were in grade 8. And uh, the, the rest were split between nine and ten. Anyway, uh, about about ten of the kids were from uh, Winter Winter Harbor, which is a little fishing village, and a and a forest or logging camp on the far west coast tip of Vancouver. Some of the kids were from Holberg, and more than half of the kids were military base kids. Mm. So the military base kids were really worldly. They'd all been stationed in Germany or somewhere, place, different places in the world, and they all had kind of a world perspective. The logging kids had no motivation to do anything because all they cared was their 16th birthday was coming up, and they would get they needed to be good buddies with the guy who was hiring at the, the logging camp because they were going to make more money than you could shake a stick at. And the fishing kids from Winter Harbor were kind of unique in between of maybe bookworm parents' kids, outdoorsy kids. You know, kind of, mm-hmm. so there was three three different clientele for sure. And the, definitely the challenge of education, right, is how do I get across to and connect with all these three different types three of different. students, right? And that's get them to buy into what I'm trying to 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 teach them, right? That's the uh, yeah. the challenge in itself. Well, there's it was easy in the sense that there were small classes, right? right? I taught them all English and I taught them all socials, and I was kind of like the little be the folk hero hero went away from many of them because I was into some music and oh yeah and I would go down to, I would go down to Vancouver and buy the latest records and bring them up and I was living in a teacherage trailer on the military base but away from the base kind of in the forest by myself so I could play my music into the forest and I would take orders from kids of what they would they would want yeah that I might get and so it was good it was yeah. pretty good that's awesome I think it's cool too to just hear like um you know, really it comes down to teaching and coaching. And I'm sure you've experienced this many times, kind of just like it doesn't, you can tell a kid to run the baseline here or set that screen, but if there's not a kind of a connection there, right. If there's no sort of outside of that surface level of, all right, here's the, here's the history lesson for today. You got to know a little bit about these kids, like little Johnny likes Led Zeppelin or whatever. Then little Johnny is like, well, I'm going to, I'll connect a little bit more to you, Mr. Langford. I'll have, I only, I'll listen to what you say, right. As opposed to, you know, sort of standing at the front of the classroom and saying, this is my class, my rules, you know? So you're already making those sort of same connections we try to make as coaches. When did you have the first opportunity as a teacher coach? Did you get to do anything at that school or was it not till you came back to uh, to mission that you really kind of dove into the coaching life? 
Yeah, I was just saying that I did coach in um, my, my um, practicum in Langley before I left. And then I also coached the year I was subbing for a year and a half, I told you. And I was in a, in a school and they, they had a sign on the wall, would somebody please coach our girls basketball team? And, and this, this was only like when I was in the student teaching, they had said to me, would you coach our boys volleyball team? And I said, sure. And I did. And then they said, will you coach our girls um, grade eight basketball team? And I go, I mean, it was junior, sorry. And I said, yes. And I did it with our, <laughs> yeah, badly. And then I, and then when I was subbing, <laughs> Fort Langley was looking for a girls basketball coach. And I said, yeah, we coached that. That's what I did. So then I did not coach in Holberg because there were only 42 kids. There was only like 10 boys and, and uh, 12 girls. And there were they're all different ages, eight, nine, and 10. And there was no teams for them to go play against. And there was really no, there's no even recreation in the, um, in the gym or anything like that. It was, you know, some of the kids height and stuff, but nobody really knows. What was it that you're drawn to? Was it because you were like, well, this is just a good opportunity for me to keep my job and build my resume or because you wanted the kids to have that opportunity was a combination of it all. Um, you know, and I think you, you, you're touching on some good things. I think, you know, being an educator now, sometimes it's hard to see some, you know, and not everybody has to do what we do and coach and, and do it, but just that ability to sort of create school culture and give back a little bit, right? To something, whether it's being the teacher advisor at the chess club or just something that allows kids to have opportunities outside of just the day-to-day, you know, butt in the seat classroom setting. What was it about all that that you're drawn to? Well, I had been a kid who'd moved from a million schools to a million schools, and I certainly seen many different cultures of school, and I certainly knew the, the kid experience of being new to school. I'd like sports. Mm. I connected with sports, even though I had been away from them for a few years, but I was still been coaching community stuff, community football and community softball. And mm. when I got the job in mission, the very first day, the athletic director got up and said, we are short coaches this year. We need coaches. And I thought, well, of course I'm going to coach. And I put up my hand. They said, they asked for somebody to, who would help coach. And I said, I'd help coach. And they said, what? And I said, well, volleyball. And I and I had offered to do the grade eight or the junior volleyball. And they said, well, we need grade eight. I said, well, I'll do grade eight boys. And they said, uh, no, there's a parent of a kid that's a teacher here that wants to do the boys. Will you do the girls? And I said, okay, well, I'll do the girls, whatever team you want. And so they gave me the junior team. And yeah. and I went to the practice and I, I didn't know a single kid. Like there wasn't a single kid that I was teaching. And so I didn't recognize any of the kids. And and I said to her, what, what's with that? And she said, oh, well, did none of the kids go to our school. What? And I said, pardon me? And she said, no, well, we're, we're, we got grade eights and nines and some grade 10s. And most of the grade 10s go to the senior high and they have 10s, 11s, and 12s. And I said, well, then why would we? So those kids, we're going to coach those kids? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, I don't coach kids in school to I just coach them to have a relationship with them. They're in my class. They, they become they become part of the culture, and, and it's mm-hmm. to get to know them better. It's to see another side of them. And I don't want to coach kids out in the mm-hmm. community. I'd go to my own community and do that. And she said, oh, well, do you want to coach the B, the, the grade 9 team? And I said, well, I don't want to coach those other kids that I've never seen before. So, yes, I'll coach this B team. And so I did. And the, the new principal we had at that school she was brand new that year. And she said, this is the craziest system I've ever heard. And she stopped, she stopped that system of coaching the high school kids, which is a long political sure. story that I don't need to go into, but, it, but she yeah. changed it after a year. 
That's interesting. And how were you? Were you pretty raw or did you feel like, what were you doing to develop your coaching skills at this age? Were you flying by the seat of your pants and figuring it out or? I had been flying by the seat of my pants with basketball at in the Langley district when I was there because basketball was, I never, I put, tried it for the grade eight team and I made it in Calgary and then I moved right away. And so I never really played. The only thing I ever learned in grade eight basketball was to punch somebody in the stomach as they were going to shoot. And then they, <laughs> then they would never comfortably shoot again. And so I learned the moral ethics of that's not the kind of coach I want to be. Yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, I, I, I sort of basketball came about because my dad was out of the scene, which was in a different province for most of the time. I went and watched my youngest brother play, Peter, who was coming through the school system as I was now a married young person. Well, I got married at 21. He was 11. And then he started to come. He went to Gladstone and he played. And I tried to go to as many games as his as I could just to support. And so I kind of thought I knew the UCLA high post offense because I'd seen it for three years of inside out backwards and forwards, but I didn't think I could mm-hmm. really teach it. So when I got my first basketball team, I went to, um, there used to be a lot of basketball magazines in those days, coaching magazines. And I got one that said the, the perfect three play offense. And I read it. It was like four four pages of thing. And I read it. It was play one was come down and it was basically an off screen and the thing. And then play two and play three. And the point guard would just have to come down and call out one, two, or three. And they'd be able to, you could run whichever one you wanted. And I thought that was really cute. So I taught that. (laughs) (laughs) I also taught them, I read books at night and I would practice in my living room floor of defensive stance and how to slide and how, you know, and one book suggested that you put your hands behind your back when you're doing it. So you're just using footwork and you could really use your body to get there quicker and, and really cut off. And we had a girl in a game go out and do it without her hands and her hands behind her back (laughs) in the game. And my team, my team was laughing at her. And I turned to them and said, what are you laughing? This is ridiculous. Stop laughing. And they said, well, this is what she's doing. And I said, well, it's me that's yeah. the problem here. It's not her. I obviously <laughs> didn't explain the drill well enough that she that she knew that this was just a drill yeah. for practice. <laughs> right? And, and someone goes, well, she shouldn't have gotten it. And I said, well, no, I think I should have painted the picture better for her. Yeah. Right? So I learned some valuable lessons about that. I would go home and, and read and read and read and read and read. And it's really, really funny because I was really basketball illiterate. Mm. I thought I knew volleyball because I played volleyball. I was great. I, mean, I mm-hmm. thought I knew it. And I had my level two in, or yeah, I had my level two by then in volleyball. I kind of thought I could coach volleyball. And I thought I could coach softball and baseball because I played baseball my all up to 14 and, and, you know, thought I was pretty decent and could coach that kind of thing. But basketball, I really had no experience with. I didn't watch NBA, ABA, and I just watched my brother's high school team. And I was, when I ran this silly offense, I didn't like UCLA post offense because it was the same thing every time. It would come down and do the same thing. And I thought, well, that works for, you know, the Gladstone Gladiators, little kids team and all that. And they do it fairly well. And my play offense, I thought, this is just stupid. Like, this is the silly little plays. What am I really teaching here? I said, I, I would like to invent an offense where... You come down the floor and we come down like, you know, point guard with two wings and two posts and the posts, we could initiate action that we'd all play off each other without calling it, without calling it in a name and without anybody pre-planning. We would just, we would just go do stuff like they could go screen on the ball or they could go screen the other post or they could go screen for the point guard on top. And wouldn't this be a brilliant offense? And I thought I was going to invent yeah. this offense. Obviously, I knew nothing eh? as, I, as I went and got some books that I learned. So we, we, I started to try to teach that concept. As I learned a little bit and as I, you know, 
got Dean Smith's book and I got Bobby Knight's book and I certainly got all of uh, all of uh, Don McGuire's videotapes a little later. Motion offense became kind of the thing that I believed in. It matched what I already thought I was going to invent. Mm-hmm, <laughs> but here, here it exists out there, right? <laughs> and it sort of came from there. You know, I got my level one. I got my... In those days, they hadn't really pushed level two and stuff. And then Ken Shields did a brilliant uh, level two clinic on the island that had just a whole bunch of famous basketball people at it asking questions. And I got invited to that. And it was... It's absolutely outstanding. And that uh, helped the progression a little bit. It just became learn, learn, learn. And it's actually been, you know, it's so funny. I say, I thought I knew everything about volleyball and baseball and that. Well, I knew nothing really, right? But I thought I did. Mm -hmm. And now here I am been coaching for 40 some years. And I don't think I know very much about basketball because there's just just more learning, more learning, more learning and changing and more learning. And and how do you teach it? And how do you teach it to this generation? And how do you, you know, just, just nonstop learn. so true in the days of just throwing x's and o's right like there's so many more of the things we're dealing with with connecting to the kids and and young people i love to hear the throwback stories though about like just reading in clinics reading in clinics right and love to see more of that sort of just getting really good clinics going again in our province and and people just doing more sharing you know and i think some sometimes i don't know what you were like as a young coach you know i felt like i had to hoard everything because i was like no one needs to know what we're gonna do and then i realized Oh wait, the more that I share, I'm actually becoming a better coach while I do this, right? And so very interesting um, kind of perspective and learning because I think someone who sees, you know, and searches you and sees what you've accomplished as a coach to talk about still to this day, I mean, you've almost been coaching as long as I've been alive. So hope that doesn't make you feel too bad, but uh, <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> still, t- <laughs> still talking about growth mindset, right? Still talking about how do I get better at this. There's so many things changing. And, and I think a lot of people just stop and go, well, I've got it sort of maybe not totally figured out, but mostly figured out. Right. And someone with your success could easily fall back on that. But I think it says a lot about why you've been as successful as you are. Yeah, maybe I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I certainly think the growth mindset's essential to being a good coach. Mm-hmm. I never was one who hoarded. I, I really appreciated the fact when people um, invited me to their practices. I'd go to everybody's practices um, mm. and watch and watch and watch. And I certainly let anybody come to our practice that wants to come. And And I actually think that, especially that first little bit of when we start up in the beginning of the year, and we're actually really teaching heavily before we start to get into the drilling competing pieces where we're, where we're, we're not teaching as much. We're reminding of some pieces, but those beginning pieces or even even our summer camps, right? Like our August summer camps, somebody come to watch that I think can gain a lot in a bunch of ways. I mean, coaching just isn't it's not X and O's, it's it's how you conduct the environment and how you talk and the speed with which you talk and the motivational ways and cues that you use to try to help each and every kid in that gym get get better and be cared about. And um, you know, I think you can see the how some people do that differently. And for me, you know, there's some coaches that they're just not me, right? I'm not a go around and pat everybody and high five everybody in the whole room kind of guy, mm-hmm. but I am a trying to make contact with everybody in a meaningful way that suits my personality. Boom. Church on a Wednesday, people. I love it. You are, you are sitting in on a sermon. That was well said. Whew. I love it. Let's talk about 
you know, the program that you ran for so long and the success that you had and some of those amazing athletes that came out of your program to even further success and those years, right? The the championship titles and and kind of just putting a school like way out in mission, right? On the map, right? I mean, you know, sometimes we get a little bit sort of and I know it bothers people on the island and you know, maybe not getting enough love. We focus mostly on lower mainland and high school sports here. And you are technically, but you know, just a, a new school and sort of really the things you all were able to accomplish is absolutely phenomenal. As I said, I tried to learn, I tried to learn and I and I started from scratch. So when I started at Mission Junior, it was a very good volleyball school, and it was not a, we were not a very good basketball school. And I was uh, coached the same kids in volleyball and in basketball, and had and had um, a group from grade eight up through grade ten. And Barry Stewart was very valuable mentor, oh. mentor to me. Um, he love that man. He invited me to start a camp with him called Running Gun Camp that we did out of the valley. Nice and hire some. Um, sponsored it so it was hires running gun camp we got heck for, we got heck for giving pop to kids <laughs> <laughs> but lachasser's matt lachasser's dad and uh all, all the lachasser's the dad ran ran hires for the valley and he was just an outstanding sponsor of our program and stuff and, and so very i learned a lot because i didn't want to talk and barry didn't really not want to talk <laughs> <laughs> um so we, yes. were prob- we were probably a good um, I would go off and work a team group in the corner and he would talk, but I would learn lots because we would have other coaches in over the course of the summer who, who would take different sessions and different topics. And I learned lots from them and that was all valuable. And then those kids went to senior high and my brother Paul took them over at senior high. And then I started with a new group and I went through with a new group from grade eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. And actually with a couple of them, I went to Fraser Valley College with and coached at Fraser Valley College. While I was transferring to Hatsik, and coaching a grade eight team that I started with at Hatsik. My wife was saying, you think this is enough basketball or do you think you could? <laughs> so, so anyway, I thought I learned a lot from mission to Hatsik about how to change some ideas and some pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had, I thought we needed a, a stronger theme and that's where I introduced Shibumi into our team at um, Hatsik. And I went through with a group at Hatsik and we, we were very fortunate. We had a nice group of kids, wonderful group of kids. And Joby McKenzie joined us for grade 12. And we won a provincial championship with her that was that was well-deserved for those hardworking kids that had been there all those years. Mm-hmm. And then I transferred, then Heritage opened and I transferred to Heritage. So when I went to Heritage, I really thought I had kind of the formula for how to do this right and mm-hmm. how to get rid of some of the pieces that had maybe gotten in the way a little bit in the other places. So really, really what it was, was how do I merge competitive keen kids that want to be the best they can be with kids that just want to be there Yeah, and just want to play school recreational sport. And they don't want somebody pushing them and they don't want, they don't, and they, and they want equal playing time and they want, they just want to have fun and there's nothing the matter with that. But so I found a way to be able to do both in a school and provided that, and that allowed us to really excel, I think at the at the competitive side edge. And as you said, we, we had some very fine players out of that. And we had two kids in, on the national team, one while they were in grade 11 and one of them uh, just after she finished grade 12. And um, we had several other kids play for Canada on junior national teams at the time, which weren't as common as they are today. Weren't like Now there's like three or four of those, but now there, then there's only really one. But we had a couple of kids on that and a couple of kids on the national team. And 
I was pleased with how it, how it was progressing. Yeah. That's an understatement, but, uh, I get your personality. It's okay. Everyone can Google the the records and look at it. But my question is how, how did you get, you talked about, you figured out a way to have, you know, those, the 12th, 13th, 14th player, I'm guessing who was just there to be a part of the team and whatever, when you've got these really high level competitive girls, right. And yourself, obviously you have a competitive edge too. What was it? What was the special sauce? Was it, uh, yeah, I'm, in, I'm interested. Well, well, the, the structure was that I, we were going to have parallel programs. We were going to yeah. have, we were going to have a competitive program that would have a kind of maybe the American model in a sense of we would have a varsity team and a junior varsity team. Sure. Competitive. And on the other side, we would have a fun basketball, introductory basketball. So the introductory basketball was anybody in the high elementary grades, because we ran camps on the weekends and Fridays and stuff. So anybody who had shown themselves and was looking good could join that fun team. Mm-hmm. As could any grade eights or any grade nines or any grade tens. So so from grade seven to grade 10, kids who wanted to just do a kind of recreational basketball program. And what we did was we had 35, 40 kids and we would run a practices during the week, a couple of them. And then we would run Friday night play days, the odd Saturday play day, but we'd have other people come and we'd, and we'd put them to, into, so we'd have 35 kids, but we'd put them into teams of the seven and the seven and this eight or whatever for, mm. for the weekend stuff. Anybody who was really, really keen there that was just introduced to basketball and liked it was allowed to go to the junior varsity practices if they didn't take away from the practice environment mm. and if they were doing well in school. Above them, we had a group, so grade, any grade 10s, 11s, or 12s that wanted to just play recreational basketball. So they were allowed to have a part-time job. They were allowed to, to have another club they belonged to or another sport in season or whatever. I asked a teacher on staff if he would coach these kids, and we would, I would buy their uniforms for them, and we would arrange for them to get some games and be in some tournaments, and they would be a school team. And we could figure out a name for them, for them right? But they'd yeah. be the heritage part. B senior team or whatever. Yeah. And so a guy agreed to do that and he did that. And then we had anybody that was keen could be on the senior varsity team that could be as low as grade nine. So, so when Kim Smith came to Heritage Park, her sister was in grade 12. She was in grade nine. I had them both on the senior team. Kim was like hardest working committed kind of kid in the world. She was, she was not the star that everybody thinks of Kim Smith now, but she was a focused, hard, hard worker. And you could see she was going to become pretty good. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the things about basketball that I like, as opposed to some sports, is basketball just isn't about being six foot five, or it's not just about being really athletic. It's about an awful lot of skills you have to master in a group setting with other people to be able to have success. Mm-hmm. That's not true in other sports. And that's not to take away from the other sports. It's a different kind of environment, right? And and in, it's kind of like Michael Jordan couldn't go to pro baseball and be a hitter. Mm-hmm. That's a skill that's just not that easily acquired. Mm-hmm. But Michael Jordan could have gone to another sport and say learned to spike a volleyball. Right. He's not going, he's not going to Major League Baseball and learning how to hit yeah. at 32 years, 30 years old. Mm-hmm. And basketball, you're, you're, you know, a lot of guys in the olden days, I always used to be marveled at the number of athletes that would leave the Olympics and go play football. Well, football's an easily mastered sport of mastering a skill that's masterable at an older age. Sure. Yeah. You're not, no one's going to basketball from the Olympics who's never played basketball. <laughs> so I, I like that aspect a lot. And, 
Anyway, back to the point here, Heritage, we produced some pretty good players who were really committed and we gave them an opportunity to be committed because we opened the gym for them like all day, every day. Yeah, and both Kim and Teresa mentioned that in in their episodes about the gym just being open and, and that's cool. And then with that success, when did you start to think like, maybe there's more to it. You you jump into the provincial teams a little bit. You had some success with some U19 women's teams. Was that kind of the next challenge for you? Or were you still just kind of enjoying teaching, coaching and uh, 45 teams and never being home, but out in mission at least? <laughs> yeah, I didn't live near mission at the time. I lived in Burnaby when I started. Oh my God. And I, and I, lived, in, and I lived in Cloverdale for most of the time. And then I moved to Abbotsford later. And I, I never, ever lived in mission, but I, I did. So, so backing up, I never really had confidence as a coach. And Mike Miller was my assistant coach. Mike Miller had played for Paul at Gladstone and yeah. then became a teacher. And I got him a job or helped him get a job because you can't get people jobs. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I knew if we could get him a job at Mission Junior, he could he would be a good helper, good, good, good coach. He involved the system. And he so he helped me coach. But I probably have to credit Mike more than anybody in the world for me being where I am today because – I didn't think I was good enough to coach the under-14 Fraser Valley Regional Girls team. But Mike said, why aren't you applying for the basketball BC under-14 regional team? And I said, Mike, I'm, I'm not ready for that. He goes, yeah. don't be ridiculous. Go, you apply, apply. And he talked me to apply. Yeah, yeah. Then he talked me into the 15 team. And then he talked me into the provincial 16 team. <laughs> he talked me into the 19 team. <laughs> he, he talked me into a university team. He talked me into, you know, he talked me into everything. Yeah. He talked me into everything along the way. And, and sometimes he would get other people to help him. <laughs> this guy have dirt on you or something? Or <laughs> No, no. He, no he just... Obviously, you trusted him and you had a good relationship. And, and he, he made me feel like I could do it. And mm. I, I, yeah. That's it? Well, I, I didn't, I had a weird sense of confidence about certain things and not about certain things. And I, mm. and I, and I don't know. And he was certainly the person that gave me the sense of, Yes, you're ready to try this. We want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Parkside Brewery. Located in the heart of Port Moody on Brewers Row, Parkside offers an amazing atmosphere with one of the best summer patios around. If you can't make it to the brewery located at 2731 Murray Street, then hit any government retail store and try the Don Pilsner, the Dusk Pale Ale, or my favorite, the Dreamboat Hazy IPA. A Hoops Journey promises that the beer at Parkside is much, much, much better than the owner, Sam Payne's streaky jump shot. We hope to see you Parkside. After a brief hiatus, Good Lad Clothing has returned, but under a new location, 3283 Main Street is where they can be found. Name drop A Hoops Journey to get 10% off any clothing items in store. The store no longer offers barber, but you can find the best retail around. Thanks to our sponsor, Good Lad Clothing, and we hope to see you there. Yeah, something to be said for, and you working with young people and, well, young women and young adult women as well, but just sort of like that idea of it's okay to be vulnerable and go for it, right? And I think sometimes, even as adults, it's hard to step out of that comfort zone and try something. And maybe, you know, you... Mike pushes you to do it and it doesn't go the way you expect, you still at least went for it and you're going to learn and grow a lot from it. Right. So I think those mentors are important to have and end up, you know, being kind of leading to lots of success and different things. Um, why and when the post-secondary other than Mike, just uh, like, when did you actually start to feel like, 
all right, this is something I I can do and I have the resume for it and and I'm and I'm good to go. I mean, it's nice to have people in your corner, but there's something that you have to take that you've got to you've got to get the the email or the uh, facts over the re- the references and and uh, application, right? And so talk about that process. When yeah. I was at Hatsik, my some of my kids had gone to Fraser Valley College and they and Mike Pine was there and just starting and I don't know how it happened, but he asked me if I would co-coach with him. Hmm. And um, some of my kids were bugging me about doing it. And I thought, sure, I'm coaching the grade eights at Hatsik as I've moved into this new school. So I, I could do a grade eights and help at Fraser Valley College. And so I did. And I did two years there. And then I and then Mike left and they asked me to take over the team. And I said, I promised these kids that I have for grade eight, grade nine, and now we're going into senior high to coach them and I can't leave them. So mm-hmm. I always kind of thought I would maybe go to Fraser Valley someday and be a coach there. They said, you know, if you don't take this job, we can't hold it for you. Um, we'll hire somebody else. And I said, yeah, I, I get that. I get that. I promised these kids, so I'm staying there. And then when Heritage opened, they came and asked me if I'd be interested in transferring to Heritage. And I got involved in the building process of the school and the committees and all that kind of stuff and did that. So so that ended up going to Heritage and that happened. Then um, at Heritage, Teresa obviously went to SFU. And then my daughter was, I've been coaching my daughter at this time too. And some of them, I'd stayed away from her on provincial stuff until 19 because I wanted her to make her way on her own and not anyone yeah. say that she did anything because her dad was involved. So, and then even at school, she didn't come to our school until grade nine. Mm. And that happened because of French immersion at Moat, where she was just was not doing what we thought French immersion should be doing for her. So why do we have her in French immersion anymore? Yeah. <laughs> And Mike McNeil, Mike McNeil actually was bugging me that I should bring Danny to Heritage. So anyway, when Danny went through, we have Danny and, and we have a great group of kids. You know, Lisa Sigurdsson and Julia Wilson and Katja Fuse and Kendra McClellan, Sarah Stroll, Danny Jessica Noski, uh, Natalie, just a whole slew of them, um, Katie Forrest. So when Danny was debating where to go to university, Let's back up. I was going to take a team to Australia. And the, the secretary came to me and said, this 16 inches of envelopes I get every day, you've done $180,000 through the school bank account. You could just ask these people to send you the postage of these girls they're recruiting, and you wouldn't have to fundraise anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's a good point. So why don't you point that out to them, okay? And then we'll just tell them where the girls are going to go. <laughs> anyway, when Danny was being recruited, it was, what do you what do you want to do? And she said, I want to go to SFU. And I said, are you 100% certain about that? And she said, yes, right? Allison you know, is a great coach. Allison's, you know, I love her to death. I want to go to SFU. And I said, okay, so then let's stop getting these letters from other people and let's stop saying you're interested at all. Let's just say no, no, no to anybody who, who sends. So anyway, when SFU left NAI, went to CIS, and then Allison left the team, Teresa and Danny told me I should apply for the job. And again, I was reluctant. There's no point in applying. And they kind of twisted my arm a little bit. And then Danny, the last day of school at university, I went to pick up Danny. And the applications for the deadline for applying for SFU was that day. And she had bugged me to do my resume. And so I had done my resume and Teresa had bugged me. And as I pick her up, she says, did you turn in your resume? And I said, no, I didn't. And she said, well, you need to turn it in. I said, well, I just don't know. They're not going to actually do that. If, look, if you change your mind, if the resume is turned in, you can change your mind and not go to anything or apply anywhere. 
But if you don't turn it in, you got no right to change your mind. You're stuck with the fact you didn't do it. I said, okay. That's, we went drove by the admissions office at Strand Hall. I dropped in the resume and we left. That's amazing. That is so, amazing. Yeah. So well, it's, it's interesting a cool how, kid. Yeah. how life works, right? Totally. Absolutely. And what a great point. I've always said if, if, if I would have taken the Fraser Valley job, El Fisher, I wouldn't have met his wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's another story. Yeah, no doubt. That's hilarious. So anyway, as it turns out, I ended up getting an application. I thought it was the token mail app, um, interview. Sure. And then ended up applying. They offered the job to somebody. She initially, I think, took it. Then she declined it. And in the process, they ended up hiring me. And, and um, I've been here a long time since. Crazy. Did you ever have a moment where you're kind of like in your head, like, okay, I know you're right, but just shut up, kid. You're my kid. I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> I think it's cool, though. I mean, what a cool relationship to have with your daughter, too. One, for her to want you to be her coach and two to like actually be able to have that open conversation. I think that's, that's pretty awesome stuff and a pretty unique relationship for a father, daughter, or anyone to have with with their child, you know? Yeah. Maybe I've been coaching her for a while then. So it's getting used to it. Yeah. Yeah. What her bossing you around and telling you what to do. <laughs> no, her, I would say more her support and her belief, sure. her belief in me the same way that Mike's belief in me was stronger than my belief in myself. Her belief was stronger. Like I, I drove up, I was coaching the 19 provincial team at that time. And when I got the job, it was like, well, what I'm doing at the provincial team work at the university level, what I'm doing in high school will work at the provincial level. I can remember driving up to SFU on the first day going, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's a new, new job and new transition, but yeah, at the same time, there's that self-doubt. But also, I don't know. Do you still carry that a little bit too? Like I, I find too, sometimes it sort of keeps you on edge a little bit. If you're kind of questioning yourself, there's an element of that too. Not, not necessarily like a, a self doubt, but just sort of, you know, people always ask, how's your team this year? And I'm always like, I don't know. And it's like, Oh, you're a sandbagger or whatever. Right. Like, I don't know how you view that, but um, a little bit of that element is as opposed to being on the other end of like overly confident, I think at times can, you know, confidence is good, but it can also be, a deterrent if you're, you know, too, too one way on that side, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I, I'm kind of in the position of, I, I think I, I still lack some confidence in some areas. I, I really, really don't like public speaking. Mm. I've never liked it. I've always, um, and it's, it's um, impacted my life immensely. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't even like walking in front of the bleachers. Ah, right. I like walking under the bleachers in the old gym in the central gym. I used to be able to walk under the bleachers to get to where I would coach. Yes. So I, so I've always been a little bit like that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Do you think that's affected people's opinion of you is that like, cause they haven't. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think people, I think some people think that I'm arrogant. Yeah. And I think some people think that I'm standoffish and I'm, I'm um, snobbish maybe or whatever. But I still, like, even with my team, I, I really, really like my team. I, I really, really like them. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've always said I will get my master's. As soon as I have a, teach, a team that I don't like very much, I'll get my master's. Because my wife was getting her master's 30 years ago, and my daughter would end up getting her master's. And, and I'm the only one in the family without a master's. <laughs> but So even though I really like them, I still, I still question and doubt whether, am I still effective? Should I retire? Should I be leaving coaching because I'm not as effective as I was before? Am I still reaching people and motivating them? And it's only because I look at the athletes and I, I see them getting better individually that I think, okay, well, maybe I haven't totally lost it yet because you can't argue with the fact she's getting better. <laughs> sure. Right? Yeah. How do you get those answers other than just 
seeing them develop, you must get a sense, a sense or a feeling, right? As a coach, you, you saying, you know, your, your personality necessarily isn't to just go and high five and tell everybody how amazing they're doing, but you do connect. So there is a bit of a relationship there. Um, have you noticed with today's athlete, those relationships have, they're obviously going to be different, but are they changing in a way that's making you think that more, or just you're being more sort of self-critical and overanalyzing on those things? Cause maybe you are feeling your age a little bit. I think I'm maybe a little bit overanalyzing and self-critical. I think that a lot of science, all the signs are pointing to good things. So I think that I, I look in the mirror pretty hard. I think it's everything I do. It's good. All of this is amazing. I mean, I think that's good. And it's, you know, it could be healthy and unhealthy, but I think look, giving yourself and being totally honest with yourself is, is good and important. But I, I think you're smart enough. You've been around long enough that you can sense a locker room. You can sense a feeling in a culture and and you'll know if and when that shift changes or something inside of you is telling you, you know, it's time for me to to do my thing. But when you think about the SFU program and what it's been through, like you mentioned, right? Leaving NAIA, going to CIS, right? You, five titles at the CIS level and then the big thing of should we go NC2A? How has that been? And when you guys made that switch over, what was kind of the biggest transition for you? Was it was it how you went about your recruiting? Um, was it uh, the athletes you were looking at? Did you change anything? Just sort of selfishly as a coach, interested to know when that happens, or did you sort of trust your foundation and what you had built and and figured out like, hey. Obviously, there's going to be a learning curve here. Road trips change, things change, schedules change. These are going to be different things, but kind of the the base was there for you already because it's a pretty unique thing in Canada. It's never happened, right? So you all are uh, kind of the eyes are on you in terms of that sense. I think that first of all, I didn't have any say in where we were going or what yep. we were doing. The only say I had is was I going to stay a part of it or not. Sure. I think that one of the things is they stated a plan a little bit that was very vague and very unrealistic to me of what they were saying. And I wanted a little bit of more concrete plan than a sales pitch. And I think we were getting a sales pitch to transition. I've never been a great sales pitch kind of guy because my dad was a salesman and I knew what he could say at the dinner table about people he was dealing with in business. Yeah. And he was a very charismatic, outspoken, and he was totally opposite of me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so sales pitches have never sat well with me. And I thought that's what we got. When we left, we ended up going a year earlier than we were supposed to. Well, it devastated our team. And I said to the team in the year that we were going to leave early, we need to stop talking about this. Your parents are all against it. Most of you are against it. We don't know what's really involved totally yet. And we just won a national championship. Actually, we just won two national championships. And we're trying to go for a third. That needs to be our focus. Hmm. It was a major mistake on my part in that everybody did stop talking about it to me, but they didn't with each other. <laughs> and they didn't with their parents, right? Not, quote, behind my back. but No, of course. But behind my back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> behind my ears. Away from my ears. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so a lot of animosity got built up. A lot of... Um, we ended. We were supposed to graduate two players from a class that had won two national championships with a core that was back there going to try to win their fourth. And um, we ended up losing 11 players. Wow. And to take to the new league. 
we lost five kids that had been there for five years that were national MVPs, um, national all-stars. Um, we lost 6'3", 6'2", 6'2", and 6'1", in those, in those 11. And we lost the uh, best shooter in the country. And we weren't supposed to. They were all supposed to have another year. I was totally torn about what to do, whether to leave or not. I got offered a job at a school, nice big school in Western Canada. And I debated and, and, I, and I felt a loyalty to a group of kids that had signed on when we knew we were going to leave the next year. So they, they were all going to red shirt one of the two years, our last two years, and then they would be joint. Then we would be in our, uh, in the NCAA. But I felt a loyalty to them and thought I shouldn't leave. And I debated and kicked. And I probably have debated that decision many times since then because what we were promised hasn't happened when we went to the NCAA. Saying that, I think that the league is extremely challenging. I think it's very good for challenging for our men, challenging for ourselves. This is kind of shocking. We're the only team in the GNAC, I believe, that's been to been made playoffs every year. And that's a fluke because the first year, how could we make playoffs? Well, they had eight teams in the playoffs that year. It was the first year they ever tried the playoffs. And the league had always been opposed to playoffs because they said it tires you out for nationals. So don't have this tournament. It's no need. We'll just use our league rankings to move you into nationals. And then everybody else was doing it and it was getting them more games. So those more games were helping their records, right? Because right. instead of being 21 and two, you could now be 24 and two. And so the other leagues you're competing against are doing playoffs and you're not. So they started to do them in the GNAC. Yeah. First year, it was eight teams out of 11. We made it. Unbelievably so. We I introduced the song Badlands to our team. It's our theme song, Badlands by Springsteen. Yeah. You know, I got a hit on collision smashing in my guts, got crowd crossfire that I don't understand, right? All this stuff about facing life's ordeals. Yeah. And we really, really had a good theme around survival, <laughs> getting better every day. The next year, uh, it was six teams. They cut out two. They said there was too many. Eight was too many, so they went to six. We um, made we made sixth, and then since then we've done better than sixth until last year, where we did sixth again after our COVID year, which was a hellish year. Yeah. So we've had some success. We've been to two Sweet Sixteens. We've been to thirty-two. We need more success. Uh, we need to do better. Recruiting has become a bigger challenge, but I don't think I'm a very good recruiter in the first place. But I think in the old days, um, it was easier to recruit Canada than it has been. Is that because of I mean, if you're the coach that likes to go under the bleachers and creep in, I'm <laughs> guessing that for you, it's it's hell to have to pick up the phone or, you know, like talk to people you've never met before and sort of, because in a sense, although you don't want them to sense it, it is a bit, you are selling something, you're selling your school and your program to a random young teenager who you want to have play for you, right? So that's super uncomfortable for you. Is that why you think you're a poor recruiter or what is it? Like, I, t- I, yeah. I, tell, I tell kids at camp that you need to overcome your fears. You need to run towards your fears and you sure. need to tackle them. And I said, for example, when I was a young boy, we had a dance in grade one. And in grade one, all the boys were lined up on one side and all the girls were lined up <laughs> the other side. And you had to walk across the gym and ask one of the girls to dance. Oh. And I went across and asked this cute little girl in this little fluffy little outfit to dance. And she said, no. And I walked back and I all the way back said, I will never do that again. I will never do that again. I'll never do that again. <laughs> and I've never done that again. <laughs> so that's why you got married so young. You just you didn't just want to get it over with, right? Just like, 
Well, I met I met a wonderful person at the right time, so it just worked out. <laughs> sure, sure. But um, I think there's a piece of that, but it's mm. a small piece because one of the things I recognized that if I was going to do this job at SFU, I needed to battle some of my weaknesses. And I've tried to battle the TV interview. I've tried to battle the all of the pieces. So some people would, would laugh and say, but what do you mean Langford's not quiet? He does clinics. He does talks in front of But I... I have little ploy things to make sure that at the clinic that the players on the floor are keeping the attention of everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of thing, or whatever yeah. you need to do, whatever you need to do, right? Same right. thing I did in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I think there's a couple of reasons. I think one of the things that in the CIS, I think I was I don't think anybody worked harder than I did. I think that some people could have worked as hard, but nobody worked harder. I was in the gym of seeing everybody play all year round as often as I could. And then the our rules, we're not allowed to do that. Mm, right. We're not allowed in the gym the whole time anymore. We were allowed to coach younger people. We're not allowed to do that kind of stuff now in the thing. I think losing some of those pieces, but I also think we're not exposed in the way to Western Canada that we were before. And we're not exposed certainly to Ontario the way we were before. And so I think some of those things have hurt a little bit. No, good stuff. And thanks for sharing that. I think it's important. You know, I think it's, uh, I teach a leadership class to grade 11, 12 kids. And one of the things we always talk about is like, they instantly make an assumption that um, a leader has to be, um, you know, outgoing and kind of center of attention or the popular kid or whatever, right? And it's like, you can have elements of a leader and still be an introvert, right? And, And that's totally okay. And I think someone in your role, it's good for people to hear that there are some uncomfortable things like we would just assume in coaching like, oh yeah, of course I want to go and talk to these kids. Well, no, that's hard. And I've got to work, work at that. And it's continue to work at it um, even at, at our age. Right. So that's good sharing. And, and I appreciate you sharing that because uh, you know, I think some people will just assume that because you're a coach and that's your role, that you're this sort of, you know, extroverted person who's willing to just small talk with every single one that comes by. And then, and if I don't stop small talk, it's not intentional. I don't think I'm better than you. It's just an uncomfortable position for me. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think to add it to that is the fact that my kids, if you ask my team, you know, what's his good quality? Well, some of them would say, well, he's quite honest mm. and uh, he's up front and he's honest. And they'd say, what's his bad quality? They go, well, he's brutally honest. <laughs> right? Totally. And, and, and when Jessica Wallace came here, Jessica, was my assistant for five years and she came from the States and a couple of American teams that she helped out with. And she said to me after the first recruiting visit, she said, were you trying to talk them out of coming? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, I was trying to see if there was a fit and I always want to undersell and over deliver. And yeah. she said, but you're never going to get to over deliver if you're so strongly undersell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and, and quite funny too, like the, when we were, chatting last week to figure out our time. And I said, Hey, you know, we'd love to have you on or whatever. And your first reply was if sure, if you feel like there's something I can offer the podcast, like you did, like it was on, you were already like beating yourself up about coming on the show, even though I was extending the invite to please come on. Like, it wasn't like I was going to say, well, actually, no, nah, we don't think we have, you have much to offer. So thanks for replying to my email. You know, it's just interesting that that was your first sort of reaction right after everything that you've been through. There's still kind of that stuff swirling around in the back of the mind, but it sounds to me, which I think is cool is that you're aware of it and you're willing to work on it. And that's cool. And it probably is a good example for many of the young athletes that you work with. I hope so. I would say so. You ready? Let's do some fun questions and we'll uh, get you on your way. Sure.
what what do you wish is there some sort of nugget of knowledge or something that you in your head you're thinking you wish you knew 10 20 30 years ago that you know now after all the life experience that you've had well i think there's a million things that could <laughs> fit in there um, when we were in the cis we we flew to um, edmonton and the kids the kids were unusually excited and it was like what what's so exciting and they said well, we're, we're, we're going to shop, right? I said, what do you mean we're going to shop? He said, well, we're going to go to Lululemon, right? And I said, of course, yeah, we'll go to Lululemon, but we got Lululemon in Vancouver. What's the big deal? They go, oh, no, it's tax-free in Alberta. Lululemon is tax-free. When I saw the passion in their eyes and their voices, I went home and bought $700 worth of Lululemon stock. Yeah. I should have bought seven thousand or seventy thousand dollars worth of Lululemon stock start because my seven hundreds were twenty six thousand now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's awesome. I wish I would have. I wish I would have bought fewer Apple products and more Apple stock. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that is gold. Books or movies? I like books and movies, and I like books that make great movies. Okay. So give us a few, give us a few on either side or there's some top that stick out to your something recently that is swirling around. Well, always swirling around for me is a, is a book in a movie called Mystic River, the book by De- Dennis Lehane and the movie by Clint Eastwood. And it's around because I have it in my recommendation for teens to, to read or what I actually, what I suggest is read the book right up until, oh, I'm losing my mind. But Tim Robbins character is in the Dave, I think it is until Dave is in the bar by the river and when he's in the bar by the river race and rent the movie and watch the movie and then when you've watched the movie come back and finish the last part of the book and it's a unbelievable unbelievable tragedy it's a great cast first of all it's it's done by Clint Eastwood and it's got Tim Robbins as the main character and it's got Sean Penn and Kevin Bacon and uh, Emmy Rossum I, I, it's a real small role in it it's, I love her from uh, anyway yeah. it's a tragedy about the how important communication is in life and the lack of communication on several different levels just leads to this unbelievable tragedy. Hmm. Um, so I love, I love that book. Um, when I was younger, I always loved Johnny got his gun, which was a uh, Metallica made their first video. Based on that book on somebody who is no, who's nothing but a brain lying in a bed, mm. no eyes, nose, mouth, arms, legs, everything's gone. And it's about the true meaning of life and whether it's worthwhilness and all that kind of stuff. I love that book for, for years. And maybe recently you were saying, I think that I really liked um, Atomic Habits. Yes. I thought Atomic Habits did a great job of, of helping people change their habits and seeing how their habits are formed and how you need to what they need to do to break them and change them and stuff. I thought it was very, very good. Yeah, I find sometimes with books like that and those ones, it, they're hard to sort of grasp and they're a little bit, but is it James Clear? Is that his name? Yeah. Yes, yes. He, he did a good job of really sort of breaking it down into sort of just sort of making it simple, right? And yep. I, Yeah, I agree. I thought it was really well done as well. Good one. Nice. How do you feel about ketchup on macaroni? One of the things I learned how to make when I was the cook in the house was, <laughs> first of all, I never ate pasta, anything pasta for my first 12 or 13 years of my life. 
Wow. I hated I hated pasta, and I always got beans and wieners when the family had pasta items. Nice. <laughs> um, and but I learned to make mac and cheese. But when my mac and so I hate like a craft dinnery cheesy milky kind of thing. I like a mac and cheese with a with a cheese crust on top, ah. and and not too milky or wet in underneath it. Mm-hmm. And yes, of course, it has to have ketchup on it. My mother, my mother, oh my gosh, my wow. wife thinks I'm insane. Because she has to have fresh tomatoes on it, <laughs> not wow. ketchup. But I have ketchup still to this day. To this day, wow! Who yeah, would it. have guessed? Wow! Controversy here on a hoops journey. I love it. There you <laughs> go. Who have been some of the most important people in your life? Well, I, I, I think um, after you know when I was five, the maze was so big. But seriously, I think <laughs> my my family, my wife, we've been married forty nine years. We'll be fifty and couple months six Amazing. months congratulations thanks and you know we only had one child so you um you, she got all the attention of us um has been very very good and now she has two kids i remember gene gerwing saying to me gene gerwing was a parent of one of my kids he says bruce when you when you have a grandkid you're just going to be the tingles in your spine are going to be unbelievable and i thought i don't really have tingles in my spine i don't know if they're gonna and then when when you have one you go Okay, that's what he's talking about. Cool. Um, so, cool. The, you know, Maddie and Oliver are wonderful. And then, and then my siblings have all been very good at uh, supporting me in my career and my, my basketball life. And it's all been good. So I would say those are the main people. Awesome. You and your wife, 50th anniversary, best seat in the house, dead or alive. What, who are we going to see? You mentioned the boss already. Um, who are we seeing live though? What, what concert are we going to? Well, she said she wanted to go on a trip next year, and then Springsteen announced he did a European tour, so I already have tickets to three, con- three concerts in Dublin. I've seen Springsteen over 50 times. So 50? 50, over 50. Or I don't what? Know how many. I can't keep track of the Vancouver ones, the other ones I got. Oh, my God. Um, but I got tickets to the three shows in Dublin, and I'm trying to get tickets to the Barcelona show. But I would say... Does he still always just kill it? Well, he's just so good live. Yeah, he's hey. so good live. Like it's it's um, a strong rush live, and it gives you the enough. It's great. Yeah, I don't. You know, on record, I like Van Morrison better than I like Springsteen. Also younger than the sun. And I'd love to see Van Morrison play in a castle, but he'll probably be in a bad mood, and he'll cut it off after an hour. <laughs> but my big regret in life is we we went to Europe a couple of years ago, my wife and I, and uh, we did Italy and we did Amsterdam. And we anyway, I looked at concerts along the way, and one of them was Mark Knopfler was playing in Royal Albert Hall. Oh, now for me. The oh. day we were flying out of London. Okay. And I debated all day. Okay, how much are scalpers' tickets? How much for my plane change? My plane change was a couple thousand. My tickets were thousands. Yeah. And I and I didn't change. We flew out that day. Yeah. And every day, not every day, but many days since I go, Mark Knopfler and Royal Albert Hall with the sound system they have would be how good? Not be pretty good. N- not worth, well, I mean, sorry, uh, not worth not changing things for a few thousand dollars, right? Like, but you exactly. just, we get stuck in that though. And we think, well, I don't know, we got this and that. But then, yeah, you think 10 years later and you're like, how many coffees or whatever else have I bought since then? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Well, sorry, sure. to, sorry to bring that up. The question was supposed to be a, a fun one. It's supposed <laughs> <Positive> to be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Awesome. Wow. The boss. That's great. Three times in Dublin, you're going to see him. Yeah. That's awesome. I love it. You just finish a road trip. It's, it's uh, Sunday. Maybe you want to watch some NFL or just put your feet up on the couch. You go to the cupboard and the bag of chips that are there for you are what? I wish I knew the name of them because I forget it. Okay. So there's a delicatessen store in Vancouver that sells a Spanish chip. Ooh. Ilda something or other. Okay. It's in a blue bag with gold printing on it. And I go buy 15 and 20 bags of them every time they have them in stock. Right now, they're out of stock until Christmas, she told me. <laughs> it's a very light, thin, thin, thin chip. And I love chips. Yeah. And I've tried to find them on the internet. I've tried to import them myself. I've tried a million one things, but I can't find them. And I don't want anybody to know what store it is because it's hard enough to get them when they're in stock. I don't want anybody okay. to fall in love with them. <laughs> I'll stop. I'll stop searching. I'll stop searching. I was going to look it up. Wow. You sound protective. They're that good. Hey, they're that good. I mean, if you got to do Canadian chips then or North American chips, I really like Cape Cod chips in America. And I really like any avocado oiled chips Ooh. Are, are just a little bit better. I laughed when I, I laughed when I heard like your Kim Smith interview, she goes, chips, or- like who wants chips, like <laughs> chips. And I'm thinking, I can't believe you haven't craved chips. Like, right. <laughs> she goes, I really like oranges. Yes. Yeah. Good memory. <laughs> good memory. Yeah, like I would never go to the corner store and be like, because I'm craving chips. Like even if I go grocery shopping, like even during the pandemic when you were like, I need comfort food, I would never come home with chips. Wow. What's your like go-to snack then? Yeah, like wait. Like when you're like, want to munch on something. I want to munch on something? Yeah. Um, Yeah, like I really like oranges. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that would maybe be like... (laughs) I know this is going to sound really random, but it's also like it is the season for oranges. And when you can just pop like three in your bag and it's like they're super sweet, you know, this is why you can still play pro basketball at 36. So you and I are not playing pro basketball at 36. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, We've got McDonald's. We've got McDonald's cups and sausage, no egg McMuffins sitting in front of us. and you're you're telling us how much you love oranges. So let's, hey, listeners, you can separate the difference and uh, figure it out for yourselves. (laughs) Oh, man. <laughs> awesome. I almost fell off my chair. I was dying. Yeah. yeah well, that's Kim, that's Kim Smith. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now we talked about offline and just sort of like doing things like this and you never want to leave anyone out, but who from a coaching perspective from you were some all-time teammates that you witnessed, like that were just like, yeah, they just got it. And they don't have to be people that were, you know, starters or whatever, but is there some all-time teammates that you were able to, to work with? I don't know, boy. That's the, the trouble with that is you're late, you're going to phone you tomorrow and say, okay, add these twelve and add yeah. these fourteen, and yeah, you know, we'll get Corbin it, to voice it over. Coach yeah, Langford would like to also add so and so and so and so. Yeah, I get yeah, it. Because I get it. There's just been many, many, many. You know, I, I, there's some that if I don't say, I feel really bad, mm-hmm. and there's some that if I do say those ones, I'll feel really bad. Sure. I've had some very special ones, and I hope all the ones. You know, I've, I've never had a player that I didn't like. Right. I've had a couple of players that have not understood some things we tried to do to coach them, and they've kind of gone by the wayside a little bit. Yeah. And we certainly, some of them were unbelievably special in a bunch of ways and, and highly successful in a bunch of ways. So, I don't know. I like it. Oh, I like it. And I think the big thing is, you know what, coaches, that I'm just going to guess that those ones that uh, were important to you, they already know. 
so you don't even need to name their names right and and hopefully they they felt that what no matter what role they were in on on that and uh I think it says a lot about you that you're just not able to even throw out you know four or five names because you're worried about which also says selfishly for you how lucky have you been to work with so many great people right worked with some wonderful wonderful people yeah. and um but you know our alumni group at SFU mentors our athletes here and they they created the alumni group and formed it and then and done it and so we've signed and they've been incredible supporters of the program awesome yeah no you that's well said good this has been super fun and and i really appreciate you doing this and someone who's self-admitted maybe not as comfortable but it is a little bit easier when it's just you and i and then you probably won't i don't even know what you think will you listen to this or just let it go out into the the universe and leave it (laughs) <laughs> no, I'll, I'll probably listen to go yeah. critique it and see where <laughs> where I should have changed whatever. Um, oh, I there's listen, the growth mindset, eh? <laughs> I listen to I listen to many of your podcasts here, and there's so many guys. Like I don't know very much about guys basketball. Sure, I've learned some stuff about guys basketball from you, and then that caused me to listen to somebody else's. But I, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably listen and critique it and think, oh God, why didn't you say that instead of that? Or, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, since you do know the show and you and you know yourself and you know that we're keen on trying to get as many people involved in the women's game as well, who's someone that you uh, would like to see on the show? The only loophole being you've got to sort of help connect us, like someone who you think that's got a good um, story, not named Danny, because, you know, we've got that lined up. So who's out there that that has a good story and would be willing to share it on a hoops journey? Sure, I, don't, I mean, there's so many XFU um, alum that are legendary and have great stories. I, I think whether it be Henry or Schneider or, or uh, Nadine Caron's story is a very, very incredible story mm-hmm. and, it, and, and and incredible for at all kinds of levels, sure. right? Nadine Caron's story. I think Nio's, I think Nio's got a good story um, and a highly successful basketball story. Yeah. I, Jeff, I think it was Jeff McKay said to you about Carmen Dolfo. Mm-hmm. And certainly Carmen Dolfo's probably pretty close to the winningest Canadian female coach in history. It's crazy. When you told me about her and then I looked her up, I was like, how we we don't know anything about her. Like, this is crazy. Her resume is bananas. Yeah, it's a, it's unbelievable. And she yeah. just, they were just second in the nation last year. Right? Were they? In Division Two? yeah. Wow. But uh, they hey, so you just of... gave me like seven people there. Nice work. Yeah, well, there's a ton, but I don't I don't know how many of them I have any influence on to help you other than maybe two or three of them, three of them maybe. Sure. I, I think there's a lot of good stories out on the female side that are yet to be told. Yeah. So. And from your perspective, before we let you go, what is it? Are you happy with where the, the women's game is at? And like you said, like I know Kim said, one thing she really appreciated was just the opportunities, things like this, little podcasts, other people doing great things to allow people to have their voices be heard and seen. And I think, you know, the push of the WNBA, but what for someone who's been involved on the women's side so long and who was planning to coach the junior boys, but ended up coaching the junior girls to start out. What's, uh, what's your take on it all and what can we do better? Well, I, I think that it needs to be addressed. And one of the, I just think there's so many issues right now between schools, between clubs. You know, mm-hmm. when I started, if you didn't go to a good school, for basketball, your chances of being successful in basketball were challenged, not impossible. Sure. Because you could get in the driveway and do what you want by yourself. And Tracy Nazarchuk made herself a great player. Um, you know, some kids in the North Vanderhoof um, made themselves great players. But for the most part, it started to become you needed to be in a school to get a competitive schedule and all that. And now it's 
become very club oriented with a whole bunch of people who think they can, can they don't think they know they can make a living off of young people's dreams and sorting this all out of how it should play out how we should do provincial teams how provincial teams should fit with club teams it should just be addressed I, we you go back to I remember you asked me earlier about starting out and I can remember after I had watched my brother Peter play at South Burner Bill Ruby went to uh and we had a little get together a few people and there was a bunch of Vancouver coaches and all the Vancouver coaches badmouth the Fraser Valley coaches uh-huh. and I didn't I didn't know any coaches I didn't know Vancouver coaches or Fraser Valley coaches mm-hmm. but I thought why do these guys hate those guys so much well then years later I'm working in the valley and I hear valley coaches badmouthing the Vancouver coaches <laughs> and I'm thinking you know this is it struck me then and it strikes me now you know I as a high school coach every time we had success somebody said well you recruited so and so or so and so or so and so you know you recruited Kim Smith mm-hmm. I didn't recruit Kim Smith or her sister twice they tried to move to my school and I talked them out of it um but parents will seek out and rumors will start and people will say stuff and I just think the animosity and rumor mongering in basketball would be nice if we could recognize if we want to compete to be better and let's compete against the other sports to be better and stop infighting within basketball mm well said. I agree. I agree. And I'm looking forward to see who Basketball BC comes up with as the new hire, because I think there's lots of room and potential for that to be a position where I think it's just a whole bunch of people just need to sit down and, and hash and chop some things out. We're all in it for the same reason, like you said, right, as to we're supposed to be trying to grow and develop the game. But why are we constantly at each other's throats? It makes a, I mean, you're making a great point there. And, and thanks for thanks for throwing it on the table. It's important. Yeah, I think it's a challenge and I think it's important, but we'll see what happens. I mean, Basketball BC technically should be the leader of the province in these kinds of things, but it, it takes a lot of, um, it takes a lot. We have, and we have a huge number of people now whose personal involvement is a livelihood involvement. So there, there's a lot at stake for them. Absolutely. Well done. Thanks for sharing that. Any last thoughts or comments before we uh, get you on your way? No, well, no, thank you. Um, I think Parkland Brewery deserves a plug, don't you? They need to... Yeah, Park, not, Parkside doesn't Parkside, get enough love, yeah. Parkside, sorry, I, I don't drink beer, so I, I but I did <laughs> I did look for it. I had to buy... Dusty said, go buy some beer for our company. I said, okay, I'm thinking, I'm walking to the liquor store. Where's Parkside? Where's Parkside? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. You heard it there, Sam Payne. I love it. Thank you very much. I appreciate um, spending time with you, and I appreciate what you do on your podcast. I think... Anything we can get out there to share stories is a, certainly a good idea. So you've you've hit upon a good one. So good luck continuing. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, we appreciate you being with us. Um, see, you did have something to offer, as I knew you would. Wishing you a great sort of off-season here. A couple months, enjoy that 50th anniversary. That's quite a phenomenal feat within itself, you know, regardless of all the other things you've done on the basketball court. To me, a future Hall of Fame coach in many different ways and different areas. And uh we wish you, you know, just continued success. Hope the teams compete hard and do well. Let's see a crack that Sweet 16, maybe an Elite Eight, Final Four, um, before your heart tells you that it's time to walk away. And whenever that time is, uh, it seems like you're a person who will know because you are, uh, you know, you're an analyzer and you know you. So we know that you're going to continue to help grow the game. You said some great things today, some great takeaways, and we're so thankful that you were able to, uh, to be with us. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. No worries. He's already given the plug to Parkside, so we don't need to anymore. We'll see you on the next episode.
supporting a hoops journey. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. You can find us on social media at a hoops journey and on our website, a Thank you to our guest, Bruce Langford. Thank you to our sponsors, ATO Basketball Merchants, Parkside Brewery, and Good Lad Clothing. And we'll see you on the next episode.